Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax. It's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome to the Vet Gurus, Brendan here with Mark, episode 302. We're back on track, Mark, Thursday, July the 6th, 2023, and we had our 300th episode last week after episode 301, as um, regular listeners will realise that makes logical sense, and we're back to normal programming, Mark. How are you? I'm wonderful, Brendan. Just Absolutely wonderful. I'll tell you what, we had a pretty good uptake with that 300th. I think people were hanging out for the 300th, and um, I think a lot of people must have been very disappointed. (laughs) (laughs) I do think we let the suspense get too, raise expectations too high. Well. um, Let them down abysmally. So, But but we're back up to our very high standard. We have a very important topic tonight. Only up from here, Mark. Um, we can't get any lower than the, than the bottom of the barrel, but uh, we try our best. We try our best. And hello to all our new subscribers and listeners. VetGurus.com, the place to go to look through all those previous episodes, including the special number 300, which was last week, and 301 the week before that, Mark. So we're back to regular programming, as I said. And... It's been a little bit rainy down here, Mark. Um, speaking of weather, we're having a little chat beforehand, and I know you're you're still up in the tropics and gets a tad wet where you are, but probably not quite as chilly as we've been. Um, Twelve to fifteen degrees Celsius for the high, Mark. The last um, few days or week what, or so. What did you just say the high was? Around about fifteen. Yeah, fifteen. My goodness, I don't think I've experienced temperatures under. 24 degrees here since we came up to Barmaga. It's always, I know it has got down to 23, 23 to 32, but it went to um, 34 today. I was telling you it's a bit hot and steamy for the dry. That's um, positively yeah. balmy there, Mark. Um, yeah. 15, 23, yes. Um, 23. Yes. Oh, so, um, yeah, fish your, and, and the rest of <laughs> You have your vet guru, Vignon, uh, yes. Yep, and underwear. And yes, thermal and underwear. The, actually, we haven't got any vet guru logo underwear. We'll have to get onto that, Mark. Good idea. So that's around about um, our high is around about 59, 60 Fahrenheit for those who are into Fahrenheit. So, tad chilly. Um, but can't complain, Mark. Can't complain. Although we did have an earthquake. We had an earthquake. <laughs> <laughs> Did you hear about that? No, um, I did not. We had an earthquake um, about, um, I forget what scale, on the Richter scale, but uh, I didn't feel it. <laughs> <laughs> it was about three in the morning, Mark, and, uh, yeah, nothing happened for me. I'm afraid to say, Mark. Um, I think we just slept through it. So, yeah, there you go. But it wasn't that, no damage, no lives lost, no, um, a few animals upset. Um, but apart from that, yeah. So that's my excitement, Mark, um, for the week. So that's all I've got. That's all you've got. That's all you've got. I've all all I've got, and I think we better get back into our regular news segment, Mark. And I think uh, you will take the first one if that's okay with you. Yeah, I I, I really um this is a 
uh, a topic that's a little bit close to my heart because I think some some uh, what do they call them? Uh, uh, key species have taken all the limelight in some conservation discussions, and um, this uh, this story um, from Silent Science Daily um, reports that. Um, Moths, under pressure from urbanisation, may be less resilient um, than bees because of their more complex and independent lifestyle and more specific botanic requirements. Um, and But despite this, despite the sort of extra threat that um, the nighttime lepidopterans face, um, Moths play almost as crucial a role in supporting urban plant communities, accounting for fully a third of all pollination events in flowering plants, crops and trees. Um, so while we are, we're always jumping up and down about how important it is for bees yes. to be involved in pollination and maintain, maintain complex ecosystems and and uh, food-producing plants, other insects are, are equally important, and not not least of which are the moths. So, so yeah, I'm I'm pretty pleased that um, that there is some uh, uh, research and science news attributing uh, the value of these uh, complex networks of insects and plants, and how that uh, very complex web is delicate. And particularly in urban environments, sensitive to uh, critical and catastrophic disruption. So, so yeah, don't squash the moth. A bit of moth love, Mark, never goes astray. Yes, moths. Got to get rid of my moth trap, Mark, to feed the reptiles and uh, um, go for something else. I think. Well, mine's another. Um, Another well, it's, this is a species that doesn't get much love because it's the most endangered reptile in the world, Mark. And this know, one's right? close to my region, isn't it? The earless dragon has been rediscovered, and the headline says it's like finding the Tasmanian tiger, Mark. So a tiny lizard that lives in the grasslands west of Melbourne here, not far from me, um, was just been sighted, Mark, the first sighting in more than 50 years. It was in February by two career ecologists who captured a photo, which they thought it was extinct. They passed on to Mark to Peter Robertson. I don't know if you met Peter. Um, I, know, no, I, I think I have, yes. I've met him, the state's premier reptile expert who's identified it as a Victorian grassland earless dragon. And for those of you who are not driving in your car or looking on the um, internet to our link at vetgurus.com. They're like a little a little agamid, Mark. They look a little bit like a tiny, a little bit like a bearded dragon sort of. Um, they're tiny, aren't they? They're, a hatchling think, bearded dragon they remind me of. Yes. I think the adults are about the size of a, as a mobile phone, Mark, um, is what they report. So they've had people that have spent 30 years looking for this species and they finally found some, Mark, and they've now a breeding program going at Melbourne Zoo, Mark. So they have 16 of them included in this breeding program and they think it is, and they've invested a government, state and national government has invested almost $200,000 to help find populations of the dragon. So so probably the most endangered reptile in the world at the moment, Mark, with 16 verified individuals in safe care. Um, interestingly enough, Mark, these dragons um 
have a pretty short life cycle. They reach maturity about 12 months of age and they breed and die within two years or so. So no wonder they're, they're struggling a little bit. Now that interest, in fact, I didn't know about these, Mark, they rely on spiders. To the so Speaking about insect, yeah, to build burrows. So the spiders build burrows and the dragons then use the, the burrows for shelter and to lay eggs or escape predators in yeah. the spider burrows. So fascinating stuff. But there we go, Mark, um, the most endangered, probably the most endangered reptile in in um, the world at the moment um, let's see what we can do to stop make it uh, to to avoid it being extinct very soon <laughs> let's see how we can stuff right. this one up Mark. Um, <laughs> no i'm sure well it's I'll a, a ter- you, it's it's in your part of the world what yes. the, the, the the threats would be those grasslands west of melbourne um that's that's sort of the country that um that the suburbs are sort of yes. creeping into and that's that's always the um concern and not not just for the for the um fauna the flora as well mark yeah. na- native plants as well and i think a lot of these grassland areas end up you know they might declare some as as um you know no go zones for development but they end up just being this little island you know yeah. surrounded by and it and it you know it just doesn't work and then you end up having things like small pockets of woodland or bush as well and then you have a you know additive complications of kangaroos you know stuck in this little area and then um, they breed like kangaroos and they and koalas and they, they all end up getting in trouble because they got nowhere else to go there's no corridors mark um, for, yeah, yeah. for the animal or plant life so yeah so we'll see what happens but you know that they're, they're in the right hands there with melbourne um, melbourne zoo breeding program there so hopefully we'll Keep a watch on that one, Mark. Um, so Watching hope, brief on hope. the grassland earless dragon. Yes, we will. So there we go. And we need, actually, we've got so many. I'm just looking through our news stories, Mark. We've got a massive backlog of them. So I think we'll have to go with a, a news only um, episode soon to tick off a few, rip through a few. But um, for this week, that's the only one we have. And I think we're going to jump into a, a short bit of a summary of a of a topic that was presented in an, an excellent, and I'm sure you will agree, um, webinar that was presented to our group, the UPAV, Unusual Pet Navian Veterinarians Group within the AVA, by um, Dr. Tim Heinemann, Mark, who's um, famous for, well, lots of things, but the main one he's famous for is being um, the vet who developed the virology tests and the PCR testing and discovered a few of the viruses in snakes, Mark, um, in here in Australia. So he's world-renowned as far as his virology, virology and it's where we send all our swabs from our reptiles for PCR testing to Tim. But he his actual daytime job, if when he's not doing PCR testing, is a pharmacology lecturer at uh, Murdoch University, Mark. And wasn't it, it, it was, um, I, I said to you that I think it's an outstanding example of the value of, um, of special interest groups. So here in Australia, we have our overarching veterinary association and then there are special interest groups and the Unusual Pets and Avian Vets is one of the very active chapters in, uh, amongst the special interest groups. And I'm sure uh, there, uh, I know there are similar analogous organizations all around the world um, but I just am um, so I don't know what the right word is Brendan I'm proud 
um, uh, I'm, uh, you know, the the, uh, the continuing. I am chuffed. That's right. The continuing education um, that you have provided, and particularly with the benefit of contributors like Tim, um, and we know several of the other regular contributors to the webinar series that you have organizers. Um, I think it's a real feather in the organization's cap. And uh, yeah, they, they, they are real uh, outstanding presentations, hour long, roughly an hour long. Um, and I think, uh, well, I know I'm a better veterinarian for having listened to them and, and given some thought to the issues that were raised. So uh, an outstanding resource. I yes. Reckon. And Tim is a, an excellent presenter. He's, yeah. Apart from the fact he always goes over time, which I always <laughs> chide him about, Mark, whether it's at a conference or, or a webinar. But, yeah, an excellent presentation, Mark. So um, we're going to jump into it. His presentation was antibiotic use and abuse, I suppose, in unusual pets or unusual exotic pets specifically, Mark. And he and he sort of walked everybody through the, the different types of antibiotics that people commonly use in unusual exotic pets and you wanted to chat a little bit about the legalities of it, especially regarding to birds and um, how we should be approaching our antibiotic use um, with them and some really good charts that he provided and or slides that he provided about um, logical approach to it. And, uh, and I think that the first thing that always comes to mind with that, Mark, and I'm certainly guilty of it, is um, not doing enough um, cultures um culture and sensitivities um bef before i make choices um yes we are often limited with what the client will allow us to spend um so sometimes we, we we're forced to to not being able to send off for that culture but um i think we need to these days especially with the antibiotic resistance um, concerns that we um, continue to push for, for doing cultures on all of these? Well, the other thing I think that was really uh, one of the, and I don't propose to try and steal Tim's thunder on just a couple of the points that he made I thought were uh, worth relaying to our wider audience. Um, I, I really valued that chart um, from the Australian Strategic and Technical Advisory Group on Antimicrobial Resistance, the rather um, ASTAG is the acronym. I don't know what I feel about that. Um, but the good thing about um, the chart that ASTAG have provided is that um, it divides antibacterial agents uh, that are used in humans up into three groups according to their risk of contributing to dangerous antibiotic resistance and um and that i mean it's a real it sort of suits me brendan because it's really simple there's low risk medium risk and high risk and you just select the most suitable antibiotic from the lowest with the lowest possible rating um uh, yeah that's the first thing yes assuming it will you know cover the potential bugs that we're considering in that that particular species yeah and unfortunately for us in the exotic unusual pet world marker um, some of the common antibiotics that are used um, are in that higher risk mark which includes keftazidine um, our um, clavulanic acid um, combinations that will be lac lactamase inhibitor combinations and enrofloxacin mark um, Batrol. and we always we've been 
laughing for years, haven't we? Um, we shouldn't be laughing anymore about the the, the thought of Batril deficiency you know is is what um practitioners used to talk about you know um, and they still do sometimes you know what do we do with an exotic pet that's uh, deficient in batrels let's splash some batrel um, into that animal and it's uh, one of the one of the ones that have the high risk that we should be not using um and unless we we are sure that um we need to and i think the key thing there is um Jumping back to the culture and sensitivity story, um, I think that making educated guesses on as much information as you can garner about a, a, a case, the gram stain of the maybe some of the tissue smeared to give you a bit of an idea of the gram characteristic of the bug, but much, much better, of course, is a, um, is a culture and sensitivity test. And... Um, and one of the things that Tim said was he was talking about the in the the well, I don't know talking about the practicality of making almost a a, a universal um, rule that uh, anything that was getting antibiotics had some form of culture and sensitivity test, even if that was sort of factored into um, some stage of the of the uh, consultation or um, uh, priced in such a way that made it such a bargain that clients had to go for it. And the interesting thing he led on to from that was the the discussion about uh, practice anti-biogram, that, um, that once you've run sufficient number of sensitivity tests, you will start to see patterns in the cases that come to your clinic that might not be universal, but might help you to select antibiotics more in those cases where you can't uh, do a, a actual culture and sensitivity test, um, that you might still be able to make relatively smart choices from uh, something like the antibiogram. Yes, yes. Um, one of my favourite books, Mark, is... <laughs> you love it when I go off on a tangent. I do. Um, I genuinely... It, it... <laughs> raises my spirits fire away what is one of your favorite books brendan is a book about antimicrobial therapy mark uh, ah. in, in veterinary practice and i'm trying to do a bit of a search for it i can't remember the actual name of it um gee it's good um i and the only reason I got it is I won it in some competition. <laughs> um, but it's a, a little um, softback book and it includes section on exotics as well. But it basically goes through systems. I think it's yep. in, you know, like respiratory system. It says here's the pathogenic bugs and, and the commensals, et cetera, in respiratory tract, for instance. And then it says based on um, species, the most common one that's pathogenic in dogs is X. Um, species and yeah, you know, yeah. in rabbits and, and mice and ferrets or whatever and then it has a section then um, another section that then talks about okay we, we think it's most likely to be say a whatever e coli in this species here's the antibiotics that are more likely to be effective and here's the the dosing regime um, that that's, that's recommended and and Tim did touch on that in his webinar, didn't he? As far as the, 
the the types of approaches to use in a particular antibiotic when you've selected it. And it was a great summary of you know you either what was his um, sort of summary is that like blast away, you know, hit it really yeah. hard and quick, or, or or slow and low, or long or whatever. Um, the, those those very good sort of um, summaries of, of of the different techniques to try and one treat the condition in the animal, but also to prevent, help prevent um, um, resistance. I really enjoyed um, his, uh, the part of the discussion where he talked about um, an end point that, and I know I'm guilty of this, I'll dispense a seven-day course, a 10-day course, a 21-day course. Our, our computer program had those things like locked into the, the label I did it so frequently, and and Tim was quite correct in pointing out that it's uh, good uh, medicine to pick an endpoint that maybe when the animal begins eating again, uh, or yes. maybe when um, its activity is returned to uh, normal, that that endpoint, and it might only be three days, it might be five days, it might not be the seven day course, um, but pick the endpoint and stop the antibiotics at that point. And the shorter duration, of course, means there's less chance of uh, triggering those antibiotic-resistant plasmids and setting that problem up. Um, but it also leads to, you know, the the less buggered up flora in the patient um, as well. So, um, yep. a good a good uh, thought to have laterally that just don't go with you know a seven, ten, twenty-one, whatever day course. You need to go with long courses for um, turtle shells and osteomyelitis, of course, but um, maybe for some of the other things, we don't need to go quite as long. Yes, and clients, I think over the over the last decade or so, have have um, turned the corner as far as appreciating the fact you might have a little discussion with them about the use and abuse of antibiotics and that, hey, we're not going to put your animal on the antibiotics just because it looks a bit unwell because I don't think it's an infectious process going on there. And I think it harkens back to, you know, GPs and human medicine as well are doing the same and that they're getting a lot tougher and then they're educating the public and saying, hey, no, you're not expected to, you know, the old turn up to your GP and demand antibiotics. Um, we certainly still get that in veterinary science, don't we, Mark? But it's um, it's not it, at the it, same it, level as it once was, is yes, it? Yes, which is, which makes things a little bit less stress and pressure on the veterinarians, um, yeah. Mark, to yeah. and to to go with what what you regard as good medicine rather than um, acquiescing to the client's um, demands. Yeah, but- Yes. Brendan, the other thing I found really interesting, the only other point I wanted to make about Tim's presentation was the outstanding summary of um, of the antibiotic pre- uh, antibiotic use, I suppose, in backyard chickens. This is, for our group here in Australia, it's been um, a, a regular theme, hasn't it? We've had multiple people speak to, over the years, um, the correct way to deal, because uh, chickens are one of those food-producing species um, that carry a different weight in regulation. Um, yeah, they, 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 there is a slightly different onus on us as veterinarians to make sure that we're doing things a particular way with uh, backyard chickens. Um, so Tim's discussion there um, and the, uh, the, I mean, 
I just emphasise that the regulations are obviously jurisdiction specific and, and uh, many of our listeners will have completely different regulatory paradigms under which they operate. Um, yeah. But um, but yeah, it was an excellent presentation on, on for us to be aware of the way things work in Australia and the way we might treat those backyard chickens. Yep. And I wish I had listened more during my lectures back way back at uni, Mark. We spoke a bit about that with the 300s, but um, the old pharmacology lectures and uh, thinking that this is a pretty dry subject and uh, maybe I don't need to stay awake during those lectures. You yeah, always look back on those foundation subjects, Mark, and think, gee, they were important and that's why they're in there. But at the time, it's the last thing, you know, you want to get into the clinical stuff, don't you? Um, when you I do. I know exactly what you say. I, I often say the pyramid of my career has been shortened considerably by the failure of me to put the bottom row in while I was at uni. <laughs> yes. Well, if any of our listeners have any thoughts on antibiotic usage in unusual exotic pets or resistance and or any cases, interesting cases they have encountered um, regarding that, either dealing with clients with it or, or some um, great case reports, um, send us an email, gmail, uh, yeah, vetgurus at gmail.com, vetgurus at gmail.com, and we would love to hear from you as usual. Any final words, Mark, or not? No? You want to get out of here? You want to get back to the rain up there and the um, and, and sun baking? Uh, That's right. Enjoy <laughs> life. And I'll get back to being rugged up here, Mark, and I'm off to find a, a blanket to I do have shroud one, myself I do, have, I do have one last thing to um, just to, this is a completely um, un-veterinary matter. I, I am, um, we had a, I was driving back last week after we'd done the 300th episode and there was a carpet python on the road um and so as is my want i um gently helped him off to make sure that none of the other vehicles would cause him any harm um and he bit me brendan he bit me on the <laughs> nipple i don't know what to say about that mark uh, <laughs> i just thought i'd let you know <laughs> That's a bit too graphic. Um, I think with that, we'll um, get out of here, Mark. I, I won't comment. <laughs> Talk to you all next week. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website, vetgurus.com, where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time.